This podcast is made possible by the good people at Boopa. Boopa is a health and care company committed to helping more than 5 million Australians live longer, healthier and happier lives. To learn more about Boopa, jump online and check them out. We've all been there. The burger dripping with oil and cheese, the chips dunked into tomato sauce. Maybe you had a big night out or maybe you just had a craving for a little guilty pleasure. But there's a growing body of research to show that the rush of salt and fat that you got from yesterday's hangover cure or the sugary drink that you washed it down with could be having a serious long-term effect on your body and, crucially, on your mental health. And some of the world's experts on this issue are in Australia. In fact, they're in Geelong. I'm Associate Professor Adrienne O'Neill. I'm the Deputy Director of the Food and Mood Centre from Deakin University. Welcome to In Good Health, a podcast about the forces which push and pull us through the world, our bodies, the food we eat and the way we live. We'll look at food and how we can eat for better physical, mental and social health and the way our decisions at home can affect lives on the other side of the world. I'm Dr Sandro. And I'm Dewi Cook. Today we're going to be talking about some remarkable work being done to help the one in two of us living with mental health issues and the relationship this has with what we're putting on our plates and in our stomachs. Because as with everything we talk about in this podcast, we're not dealing with absolutes. We would never say silly things like eating tofu is better than taking your antidepressants. What we do want you to think about, though, is good, healthy food and how it might work to complement or even improve all of the other therapies and strategies we use to cope with life. And if you have any concerns about your mental health or you need some help, please, please reach out to your GP or visit a website like beyondblue.org.au for more information. And what even is mental health anyway? It's often shorthand for clinical disorders like depression or anxiety, kind of like a problem needing to be fixed. But we all experience mental health, just as we all experience physical health. It's part of us. And it's been long established that there are certain things that we can do in our lives to improve our physical health and reduce our risk of disease. Things like exercising more, cutting out smoking, and yeah, eating well. So why can't the same go for our mental health? Enter Deacon's Food and Mood Centre, where Adrian O'Neill is the Deputy Director. A few years ago, Adrian was part of a team that released world-first research linking diet with major depression. It was called the SMILES trial and was one of the first intervention-based clinical trials that probed that link. 67 people took part in the trial, 33 of them received help with their diets, things like meal planning, grocery boxes and regular check-ins with a dietitian. Meanwhile, there were 34 people in the control group who got regular social support but no dietary advice. And it's important to note that the majority of all those who took part were already receiving some form of treatment like drug therapy or counselling. And of course, we're encouraged to continue this through the trial. Anyway, the result? After three months, 30% of those getting dietary help said they'd experienced major decreases in their depression, compared to just 8% in the control group. So to hear more about this research and how food can affect our mental health, I chatted with Adrian. And after they're done, I'm going to talk you through some of the foods that worked for Adrian's team in their study. So stick around. Dr. Adrian O'Neill, it's great to have you here. Food and mental well-being, how are they connected? Yeah, 
Well, the evidence from the past 10 years or so has really suggested that diet is incredibly important for mental health just in the way that it is for any other physical health condition. And I think in my career over the last 15 years or so, I've predominantly worked in chronic disease prevention and management, so really around cardiovascular diseases. So heart disease, And heart diabetes, disease, yeah. stroke, diabetes. And, and we accept that diet is like a big part of that. You know, when people Absolutely. have a heart attack or diabetes uh, type 2, we often talk about changing your diet, increasing fruit and vegetables, trying to eat a heart-healthy diet is something we hear a lot about. But mental health is kind of recent, but it's become a huge discussion pretty quickly. Yep, absolutely. And I think because it is so well accepted for the physical Mm. health conditions, then when I, um, in my area of research, I'm sort of straddling physical health and mental health. When I come into mental health and psychiatry, it is so stark how far behind we are. And so a lot of the lessons that we've learned about the benefits of targeting lifestyle for uh, cardiovascular diseases and diabetes, um, it's just a no-brainer that we mm. start applying these to mental health. So really with, within the Food and Mood Centre, and of course led by Professor Felice Jacker, yes, yeah. um, a lot of of the evidence that's been generated in this sort of new area of lifestyle psychiatry or nutritional psychiatry, as she's coined the term, um, has really only been generated in the last probably decade or so. And really, it's only been probably within the last two or three years that we've actually started to see some widespread acknowledgement and recognition that this is a sort of feasible and and plausible area mm. of um, research and, and clinical practice. So how is the food that we eat and, and our mood, how are they linked? So there's been pretty consistent observational or what we call epidemiological evidence to suggest that good dietary patterns can actually be protective over your your onset of the common mental disorders, particularly depression and anxiety. And so that means that we've been looking at the population from outside. We haven't been intervening or giving people certain diets, but we kind of look at the diet that people are eating across the population and then we look at the prevalence or the rates of some mental health or mental illness and then we think, well, there's a, there's a kind of a link between certain diets and a lower risk or a lower rate of mental illness outcomes. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we've seen this for both better diet quality and better mental health outcomes and equally and quite independently worse diet quality um, translating to worse clinical outcomes or, or depression and anxiety risk. So those findings have now been observed across multiple settings, across multiple age groups, various countries, and really they are consistent and compelling data. And that really allowed us to generate some hypotheses around, okay, if we're starting to see these associations, and of course association doesn't equal causation, so you mean, but by that you mean that you know you can find the two. I can have breakfast and then um, hit my head on the table, and uh, those two might be associated, but they're not cause and effect. The, the my breakfast didn't cause me hitting on the table, but over a population, if you see those same things happening next to each other time and time and time and time again, uh, eventually you start to think, well, maybe there is actually a link 
of causality, that maybe one could be causing the other. That's right. And there are just some limitations to observational studies. Um, There can be other third factors that might Mm. explain some of these associations. As you say, you might eat something for breakfast, fall over and hit your head. We might control for as many of the various factors that we might think influence that relationship, but we might miss something. um, Like the uneven pavement outside. But but I wanted to I wanted to ask you that exactly. So you know if you have if you're looking at the population and you're finding that in people who have a better diet a healthier diet, which let's be honest can sometimes be more expensive or at least be perceived to be more expensive. So if people are eating a healthier diet, they have lower rates of mental illness, better mental health, and people with poorer diets have higher rates of mental illness or poorer mental health. So I suppose the questions that you're asking and that you started to answer are, first of all, well, is it that you feel down so you eat more unhealthy foods? And when you feel better about yourself and you feel better in general, your mental health's better, maybe you reach for the healthier foods? Or is it in fact a third factor like poverty? We know that you know poverty across Australia, people living in poorer households, poorer communities have poorer access, less access to healthy food, maybe can't afford it or don't have the time or the, the access to good food. Uh, but we also know that people in poorer communities have maybe um, you know high rates of mental health directly, but also other things like high rates of alcohol consumption, which are you know linked with what we call the social determinants of health. So how do you make sure you know do do we know if it's a direct link, and do we know which way that link is running? Yes, yes. So that is one of the things that we can um, adjust for when we are performing these sorts of observational studies. So we can, what we'd call control for or Mm. account for socioeconomic status or education or income. Um, And we do tend to see that these relationships between diet quality and mental health are quite consistent Mm. and independent of those associations. So even when you take out those third or fourth factors that association, that link maintains. Yes. So that's where randomised trials are key because when... So what I mean by a randomised trial is that in order to test, say, for example, in in, um, some of the the trials that we're conducting at the Food and Mood Centre, looking at randomly allocating people with existing clinical depression to a dietary intervention compared to uh, a placebo... That's where the whole idea of randomising patients Mm. allows for those sorts of things because then you hope to get a good representation of people from different types of backgrounds, socioeconomic and and, um, other sociocultural and other types of backgrounds in each group. So Mm. that is adjusting for those sorts of issues in the study design. And those sorts of study designs, the clinical trial, as they do with any sort of new drug or device or what have you, can actually tell you about Mm. the causative role of that intervention. In our case, what we're interested in being a dietary intervention. Mm. So tell me about great great intro to uh, the SMILES trial, which has had global accolade. Uh, You know, I hear, I actually traveling often hear about um, this from people overseas and this came out of 
Geelong, came out of Deakin here in Melbourne. So can you tell me about the SMILES trial? Yeah, certainly can. So the SMILES trial is the first clinical trial ever to show that a, a dietary intervention that targets improving um, in, improving people's dietary quality over three months could effectively treat clinical depression. So when we talk about um, improving diet quality, we were targeting, we were sort of using a, um, a Mediterranean diet approach. So that was really a lot of the best evidence that was available from the observational data and from other health conditions that made sense to build a diet or adapt the Mediterranean style diet for a depressed patient. So that involved lots of oily fish, um, olive oil, um, nuts, seeds, legumes. Fresh fruit and veg. Fresh fruit and veg was mm. the, really the basis for it um, and some cuts of red meat as well. So for three months, patients were assigned to either receive this three-month program with support of an accredited practising dietitian that helped them um, identify goals and, and barriers and enablers to adhering to the intervention. They provided recipes. We provided food hampers. All the while, our control um, condition were receiving access to a social support program. So again, over the three months, coming in and seeing a, a researcher every fortnight talking about sort of benign type issues. So we call it a befriending protocol, which is mm. often used in psychological interventions to, mm. as a control condition so that you're eliminating any effects of um, just purely having contact with people as someone with depression. And at the end of the three-month period, when we compared the depression scores of the dietary group and the social support group, really surprisingly, we found a 30% remission rate in mm. those who received the dietary intervention compared to those who received the social support condition. So if we think about that in the real world, that essentially means if you're a doctor providing this type of intervention that focuses on diet or you refer uh, one of your patients on to a, a dietitian to, to do that program, one in every four patients could potentially achieve remission from their depressive symptoms over that period. So when you think so about that... So no it's longer, no longer experience it, the, the majority of those, of those symptoms. Symptoms, mm. that's right. So when you think about the effects of this trial... That is more potent by about three or four times than the effects of pharmacotherapy or, or drugs for um, or standard care that's currently being delivered for major depression. And what we also found was that the more closely patients adhered to the modified Mediterranean diet, the more they improved. Mm. So that just provided that really nice piece of evidence to show the degree to which one changes their diet, mm. the better their outcomes will be. So the uh, more the, there's a dose effect. So yes. the, the more you change your diet and the more closely you stick to the Mediterranean diet, in fact, you saw even greater results. That's, that's quite amazing. Yeah, that's right. Now, really interestingly, we can't actually explain why that might be or the mechanism driving that. So one of the reasons is because, as I mentioned before, that we know that there's this relationship quite independently of each other between improved diet quality and better mental health outcomes, but also 
worse diet quality and poorer mental health mm. outcomes. So in fact, because the study for a randomised control trial compared to a lot of really large scale drug studies, for example, was reasonably small, mm. we actually didn't have enough people at the time to know whether or not it was because people's diet quality um, because, you know, it improved and there was so much more diversity and more fibre and all of those things that we know are really important for our health or if it was just because there was a reduction or an elimination in mm. junk food. So that's something that we're wanting to now go on and run a sort of Smiles 2.0 in a much larger setting in clinical practice in the real world to tease out some of these questions. What works for whom under what conditions? And so why, I mean, we hear a lot about the modified Mediterranean diet and I know you've done some, I know you've done some research also in other domains because it's, we know it's great for our heart, it's great for our brains, it's great for our skin. There are so many benefits to the modified Mediterranean diet and as an Italian, I'm always reminding everyone quite proudly. Um, But what is it about the modified Mediterranean diet that, you know, so fresh fruit, veg, whole grains, nuts, seeds, healthy oils, oily fish and a little bit of meat What is it about that magic mix that is so good for our bodies? Yeah, well, largely we chose it, one, because of the – there is probably the best and strongest Mm. evidence um, that's that's come from that diet. As you said, you've just outlined a whole lot of – I always – you know, we we always get asked – I always get asked, you know, what should I be eating, you know, which diet should I be following? And for me, if you go to the evidence, it always comes back to that – that pattern of modified Mediterranean diet. And that doesn't mean that you have to eat like an Italian um, because you can actually use a modified Mediterranean diet in an Asian context, in a South Asian context. You just change all of the ingredients, but the food groups stay the same and the macronutrients, micronutrient mix, the, the, you know, large amount of fiber that you're getting from all the fruit and veg, the range of micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. So you're getting that diversity, good for the gut, good for all the different bodily functions and it turns out also good for your mental health. Absolutely. And so one of the dietitians that was working on the study, Catherine Itziopoulos, she had devised this um, Ten Commandments of the Mediterranean Diet for health as part of her PhD a number of years ago. Um, and we felt that um, that was a really nice sort of model on mm. which to build um, the, the intervention for this study. So essentially at the heart of the Mediterranean diet is the fact that it's an anti-inflammatory mm. type of diet. So, so it reduces inflammation yeah, in the body. And that's, that's, right. that's its link to many of these chronic diseases. Isn't it? Absolutely. You know, inflammation and, and oxidative stress is really at the heart of all of the conditions that we've been mentioning today. So when we think about, if we sort of think back to the probably the 1990s, we saw data that showed that inflammation can be both a cause and a consequence of depression. And so mm. I think since then, as the evidence has gotten greater, inflammatory pathways have since become this kind of therapeutic target for improving depression symptoms. Mm. 
What do you mean by inflammation? Yeah, so I think we often think of inflammation in the context of sort of acute inflammation, like, you know, you, you fall over and graze your knee and it, there's a sort of an inflammatory response to help your body like to heal. It swells up, heal. it gets red hot. That's and, right. Yeah, painful. But, but what we mean when we talk about inflammation as a driver, so our consequence and a, um, a driver of conditions like depression and heart disease is that the body is in a state of chronic stress. So it's this low-grade, long-term, low-grade stress that doesn't sort of heal in the way that an acute um, infection could. Mm. And again, you don't mean stress as in feeling stressed because that you know that can also go alongside anxiety and depression often go hand in hand and they're very common conditions uh, across Australia but what you mean is a physiological stress so it's it's a heightened immune response uh, and it's also certain hormonal changes um, higher levels of certain hormones that sort of put you in a flight or fight type response but for a long time and you start to eventually have it starts to eventually have a strain on your body yeah that's exactly right so putting you at risk of um or or being more susceptible to developing other conditions so you can see how if your body is constantly under that level of low-grade stress that it would make you susceptible to other conditions like having a heart attack for example and we know that this sort of inflammation or heightened level of inflammation in the body and even low levels but over a long time is associated with heart disease, diabetes type 2, a number of different chronic diseases as well as some common mental health problems. That's right and so the idea that diet and nutrition can act as an anti-inflammatory response to this sort of low-grade inflammation explains or is a potential explanation for why this type of intervention using lifestyle um, could actually be as effective for the likes of depression as it could be for the likes of, of heart disease and diabetes. I think it's really important to reiterate one of the points you made, which was this is not a replacement for people's medication. So, you know, the the trial isn't advocating that people stop taking their um, medications, particularly the medications that have been prescribed by a professional. This is really in addition to the medication you may be on for the treatment of anxiety or depression. They found incredible benefits for individuals in the context of still continuing to take those other therapies, the the psychotherapies, um, but also the pharmacotherapies or the medications. Yeah, absolutely. That is really a key point um, of this study and also the, the broader field of lifestyle medicine is that this should be, this approach of using lifestyle should really be sort of step zero. And in fact, in 2015, the Royal College of Australian and New Zealand um, psychiatrists actually released clinical guidelines for mood disorders that actually stipulated that this should be the case. So where you've got um, clinical depression, the basis of treatment, the foundation of treatment should be lifestyle um, therapy. So we're talking about um, yeah, nutrition, physical activity, sleep mm. hygiene, smoking cessation, um, substance lear- misuse. Yeah, and we're learning. We're learning so much more, aren't we, about how all of these different things influence on 
the mind and on our mood. We're, we're realizing that, you know, exercise and outdoor time in nature and all of these different things, which we're starting to get evidence around the benefits for uh, on our mental health, which kind of on face value seem a bit obvious, but at the same time, we've overlooked them for decades. And certainly as doctors, we've overlooked them or we've very often overlooked them. What What's the take-home message from the SMILES trial? Like what should we all be doing in our everyday lives just to, you know, boost our mental health from what we eat from, from a dietary perspective? Yeah. So um, there was a, a very, very large study that came out a number of years ago called PREDIMED, which actually looked at the Mediterranean diet in a very, very large randomised control approach in the general population. And it found that adherence to a modified version of the Mediterranean diet supplemented with nuts and oils could actually prevent the onset of depression, particularly Mm. in patients with type 2 diabetes, which is very interesting. And again, just highlights that link between the physical and mental conditions. So given that we know that in 75% of cases, the onset of a common mental disorder will occur before the age of 25, then there are some serious opportunities here for what we call a primary prevention of the common mental disorders. Now that we know that the evidence is so strong linking nutrition to brain health and particularly in children when their Mm. brains are forming and even so far as back as in the womb and potentially preconception, the potential to prevent a lot of these common mental disorders, which incidentally are risk factors for then going on and having a heart attack or developing diabetes. Mm. It seems like intervening in those early critical years of life by targeting lifestyle is potentially a really, really powerful way of preventing this sort of um, this it's sort of a twofold strategy mm. for public health. And when we talk about lifestyle interventions, we mean sort of things in our everyday lives as a sort of intervention, as a, as a way of trying to address a medical condition. So it might be uh, physical activity and exercise, uh, diet, it, but it could also be getting out and, and spending time with other people, spending time outside. It can be a range of different things that we use in addition then usually to medical treatments for addressing or trying to reduce the burden of common diseases. Absolutely. And, you know, we often find that these sort of pillars of health often work in combination with each other. I mean, I know as a, um, when I've got a toddler, I probably didn't sleep for about a year. I slept extremely poorly. I know that everything fell away with regards to my diet and eating, my exercise, um, when I was really struggling to get good quality sleep. So we know that these lifestyle pillars all interact Having said that, something that was really interesting about our findings with the SMILES trial was that we actually saw these effects of diet on mental health symptoms independent of weight change and independent of physical activity. So that means that in this particular instance, diet and potentially other unmeasured or unaccounted for variables did appear or, or to cha- be changes, the dr- yes sort of things that we're changing in, tra- in changing in at the same time that we're changing our diet even though we said to participants 
Um, please don't go changing what you're doing in the rest of your life with regards to physical activity and, and that type of thing. But we know from, um, you know, as researchers that as soon as we ask people not to do that, um, they will. But um, we knew for sure because we measured their physical activity and weight pre and mm. post that um, these effects were independent of, of weight change, which I think is an important finding because when you talk about the relationship between diet and depression, uh, one of the first questions that you'll get asked is, yeah, but that's probably going to be a function of weight change, right? If you target someone's diet and it improves and they lose weight, they're going to feel better about themselves. But in fact, we didn't find that with smiles. So that's, I think, a promising finding insofar as we know that we don't necessarily have to target weight or focus on mm. weight in the, with these types of interventions we saw it wasn't as if you had to lose weight in order to be um, to feel better at the at the end of it. So that is important. With all of the pressures that a lot of people are under, either health related, family related, uh, financial pressure, time pressure, um, I think finding something that we can do that is accessible. And that um, hopefully if, if we can make sure that everyone can get access to good food, as you say, that's a big challenge in itself. But if we can get access to good food and if we can know how to cook it and, and consume it and then eat it with others and put down our screens for a moment and connect and all the added benefits that even come with that. But just the simple act of eating well can be so good for our mental health. And I think that's a really exciting message. And regardless of how old we are, by eating well, we can really improve our mental health. I think that's a really important message and, and it's a message that we can't tell enough. I mean, this is why I think it's such an exciting field and the, the, the SMILES trial alone, um, which, as I said, it's now been replicated uh, numerous times now, does provide some hope. It feels like it's been such a long time in the field of psychiatry and mental health that there have been very limited or few significant advances mm. um, for people who are experiencing and living with mental disorders. And I think this really could open up a lot of pathways, particularly mm. in the context of the healthcare system. Um, we are working really hard to essentially transform. We've, we've set our sights high and we're working really hard at the Food and Mood Centre to, with others around Australia to transform mental health services. So you're right, I think this is a really, really exciting area. So Sandro, Adrian mentioned something called the modified Mediterranean diet in your chat, which I know as a proud Australian of Italian heritage who's always banging on about the supremacy of your food will just tickle you. And the diet for the SMILES trial included very specific things like 60 mil serves of olive oil per day or six serves of vegetables a day, one serve of nuts and moderate amounts of lean protein, including at least two to three serves of fish a week. Mm. Now, that olive oil thing, though, really interested me because I'm somebody who does a lot of Asian-style cooking with other kinds of oils. So what is it about olive oil? And so I spoke to someone who's an expert in the Mediterranean diet and its applications across cultures, Deacon Uni dietitian Dr. Elena George. Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> with all of the research that we've done into the Mediterranean diet, olive oil is a really important part of the diet. It 
contains monounsaturated fats, so they're one of the good fats that promote cardiovascular health, but it also contains polyphenols, which is what we're becoming increasingly more interested in because polyphenols are anti-inflammatory and they have antioxidant effects. So including olive oil not only makes your dishes, your veggies taste better, it can make them more filling, but it's actually having positive effect on your health outcomes as well. Even when we talk about olive oil, we're talking about extra virgin olive oil that's been cold pressed. That's the one that's highest in polyphenols. If it's a really old oil, all the antioxidants have oxidized. So they're actually, you're not consuming them anymore because they're not in that oil anymore. So that could be really old oil um, or oil that's been produced from poor quality olives. So in terms of other oils, some of them have been shown to be beneficial, but there aren't any today that have been researched and shown as much benefit as olive oil because of the polyphenol content in the olives. Um, If there are any sort of challenges with the taste or anything, then we would potentially recommend blending the oil. If you're making an Asian stir fry, you can't get the taste of sesame oil from olive oil. So having like both in there is, is a way around it. I think what's interesting to note and what a lot of the people I've spoken to will say is that there's often a bias towards a more European style of diet in these discussions because, you know, frankly, that's where the research is coming from. The research, or more specifically the money for research, is coming from those countries and cultures where olive oil is more common than, say, ghee or coconut milk. But having said that, what we've heard is that using olive oil in healthy amounts can be as simple as adding it to your stir fry or drizzling it over your veg, however you cook it. And to understand what makes a great olive oil, I met this amazing woman at the Abbotsford Farmers Market, Lena Siciliano from Rose Creek Estate Vineyard, who came to Australia from Italy in the 1950s. And when I asked her how to tell a good olive oil, she said this beautiful thing. If you practice like we did because we were born under olive trees, you know. Anyway, Lena's tip is freshness, to find the freshest olive oil you can. Hers is pressed within 48 hours of being picked, sometimes within 24 hours. And the way she tells it, it really doesn't have to be complicated. It's really good for you, olive oil. Especially if you do a little bit of, even if you cook a little bit of pasta and a crushed tomato and a bit of garlic and you put olive oil raw olive oil, don't cook with it, and mix it together, a bit of basil, especially for summer, put it on top of the spaghetti, and it's, it's a perfect meal. Beautiful. Yeah, and olive oil is certainly a staple in our kitchen as well. I have to say, having grown up in a, in a family that produces our own olive oil, um, <laughs> it pretty much makes it onto and into everything. Though I have to say... More than 60 meals a day? Oh, I'd I'd say 60 meals is pretty much what goes in our breakfast. (laughs) Hey team, Dr. Sandro here. For more information and advice on any of the things we've chatted about today, make sure you also consult your own doctor. Check out my Twitter feed, at Sandro DeMeo, for news and information from the world of good health. And if you've got any questions or feedback about what we've been discussing today on the podcast, use the hashtag InGoodHealth. And please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your mates, tell your mum, it all helps. Thank you to Miranda from Melbourne Farmers Markets for connecting us with loads of terrific storeholders. If you're in Melbourne, check out their website, mfm.com.au for all the upcoming market dates around town. This episode was produced by me, Dewey Cook, and mixed by Jessie Bear. Thanks for listening.